I'm so thankful for these men and for their desire for your word to know you, to know the truth about you. And so, Father, even over these next couple of weeks, as we bring our study of pneumatology to its conclusion, I pray that uh, our hearts would be drawn to you, that we would be just incredibly grateful for the gift that the Holy Spirit is to us. Uh, without him, uh, we would really uh, be found wanting. And yet, because of him, we're able to live with you, knowing that now we're one with Christ, and he lives within us, and we are able to commune uh, with you uh, because of him. So thank you for that privilege. Thank you for the gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, last week I was out. I had taken a few days towards the end of the week uh, with my daughter, Emma. Uh, She's homeschooling this year, and so I wanted to take her on a field trip to Washington, D.C., and show her how the government functions or dysfunctions, as the case may be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and we we had a good time. Took her to the Bible Museum and had a great time uh, last Thursday and Friday, uh, just spending some time together, and I was grateful for that. But I really did miss being here with all of you men, and uh, really was grateful for Pastor Alex and all the work that he did last week in explaining some things for us. Um, Although I, I did here tell that uh, he, he worked his way through the whole lesson, basically used all the time, and then said, great, if you've got any questions, ask Pastor Rich next week. So here we are, um, and, I, and that's what I do want to do this morning. We do have some material that I would like to cover, but I know that, that this issue, uh, subject of cessationism, spiritual gifts, um, really gets down to the heart of pneumatology. That's where uh, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, intersects with life in the church, and who we are as men in the church. Um, And so I want to make sure that whatever questions you may have on this subject, you've had a chance to ask and have answered. And if we've got a waterfall cascade of questions, um, I might need to do a write-up for you, get get you men to submit those questions to me, and I can answer those uh, in writing if we've got just too many this morning, but I I don't know that that'll be the problem. Um, But I do want to make sure that uh, if there are any pressing questions or lack of clarity or confusion, that we do what we can to clear that up. So we'll we'll start with that and then move into some material as we get going here. We can't take the whole time, uh, but we'll start there. So guys, what questions do you have from where we've been here, Uh, either as it relates to spiritual gifting or as it relates to uh, the doctrines of cessationism versus continuationism? that Pastor Alex covered last week. Oh, he did such a good job. There are no questions. <laughs> yeah, Gary. Uh, right. Sure. Yeah, I I would say every prayer um, is ultimately to the Father in the name of the Son through the Spirit, right? So every prayer is a Trinitarian prayer. There is no prayer that does not involve the Holy Spirit. Um, There's also no prayer that does not involve the Father, right? And again, that's because they, even though being distinct as three, are also one. And so to direct prayer towards one is to direct prayer towards all, because there is no differentiation. There is distinction, but not differentiation between them. Um, So I think that's a very important point to remember, um, that apart from the presence of God's Spirit within your life, 
you have no capacity to pray, right? Now, as it relates to the specific function, the economic function, remember we, we covered that as it related to the doctrine of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit in your life, uh, yeah, it's entirely appropriate, I think, at points, times, to direct prayer to the person of the Holy Spirit, remembering that you're doing that in the name of Christ, ultimately unto the Father, but there are certain functions of the Spirit um, that, that He, um, that he roles that He plays specifically, such as illumination. So um, we use the example of Charles Spurgeon, for instance, where before he goes up to preach, you know, on his way into his pulpit, he's praying, Holy Spirit of God, illumine and enlighten the eyes of the listener. Right, and that's, that's a direct appeal to the Spirit of God to do His work specifically. But because of the oneness of the Trinity, it's not as though that prayer is being offered in isolation from the other two. Okay, so that's what I would say to that. Yeah, Christian. Sure. Right. Right. Just a couple of introductory clarification to that question is essentially in light of the Catholic doctrine of sainthood, depending upon the miraculous exercise um, and intervention of a saint, um, how, 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 does this fit with, how does this fit with that? Okay, good question. Um, number one, I would say the doctrine of cessationism does not mean that miracles could not ever occur. Okay, that's not what we're saying. Um, the, the, the sovereign intervention of God in a miraculous way is different than the gift of miracles that we're talking about. So there's a distinction between the gift of miracles and something that is miraculous, right? When, when any one of us came to know Christ, that, gentlemen, is miraculous. Um, so God still engages in miraculous kind of work very clearly. We can talk more about that. Um, but that's very different from the gift of miracles. The New Testament gift of miracles is um, the Apostle Peter walking down through the temple courtyard and saying, healed, 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 healed. Because he has the gift of miracles specifically as an apostle. And those miracles are signs meant to affirm his apostolicity. Okay? It's that gift of miracles, the ability for a human being to walk around and just heal anyone whom they choose through the power of the Holy Spirit um, that we're saying has ceased because we don't see that happening. That is not to say that miracles cannot happen. Okay, so I want to make sure that that's, that's, very, that's a very clear distinction because I think it's a very important distinction to make. Um, but as that relates to the doctrine of, or, or to, to the Catholic saints in Catholic doctrine specifically, um, I personally would not affirm, uh, I, I have not studied all of those saints and all of those claims to miracles. I do believe that there, that there are genuine Christians um, throughout church history that have been subsumed by the Catholic Church who were great men and women of God that were made saints retroactively. So it's not to say that there are no saints that are not true followers of Christ, but I think in, in many of those instances, um, those things that were, that were said to be miraculous of the saints, um, how are those things to be, to be verified? 
um, you know, most of those things you're dealing during an era um, where there is a strong kind of mystical understanding of the metaphysical universe. Um, there is not a scientific understanding. Most of those, quote, miracles are happening in a pre-scientific, pre-industrial age where perhaps some of those things that, that happen um, could have very good explanation if science was understood at the point at which they happened, but science wasn't understood, and therefore it's miraculous, right? Well, I, you know, if that were to happen today, it would truly have miraculous if it happened. That's one category of events that I think could be ascribed to saints um, in Catholic doctrine. That, that would be an explanation of that. Another explanation is, honestly, you're living in a pre-media uh, without empirical observation and recording rights. And so who's to say whether that, that actually happened or not? Uh, news in those days really traveled mouth to mouth. Um, and how is that to be substantiated? Well, it's, it's believed, and so now it's kind of locked into, into Catholic doctrine. Um, regardless of whether or not something actually happened, um, and there's no way to validate that. Um, so I, would say, I, I think there's a number of those instances where I have looked at them where I would say, I, I just don't believe that that happened. I think that that's kind of legend that's been passed from mouth to mouth to mouth, but it was not recorded from a first-hand witness um, in an empirically observable way whereby it could be validated. And so I, I just don't believe that that actually happened. Um, and so I think you've got certain miracles that are, that are over in, in that category as well. Um, and the Catholic Church, as a church, had a very significant and vested interest um, in, in kind of affirming those things because, as we talked about, there was and is a whole cottage industry um, in the Catholic Church um, that generates significant revenue for the Catholic Church because of the veneration of the saints. And so the more saints, the better. Therefore, the more miracles, you know, the, more pro the, the, more, um, the, the greater the bottom line at the end of the day. And so there's a, there's a vested interest there that causes me to kind of doubt perhaps the legitimacy of some of that, okay? Does that, does that answer the question? Um, that's not to say that, that um, miracles are impossible. That's not what cessationists are saying, okay? It's that, that, that the gift of miracles has ceased. Okay, that's an important distinction, all right? Yeah, Chris. I don't. My, my brother is not charismatic, but... Oh, oh, a brother, like a Christian brother. Got it. Yeah, sure, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Uh, I was faced with this over in Madagascar, uh, actually, like a, a year ago exactly. I was in Madagascar a year ago, having a debate with a continuationist, charismatic, um, on this question. Um, so I think the the starting point um, really is to number one. <laughs> Make sure, go back to the gospel and make sure, hey, our, like we're on the same page here, right? Like fundamentally, this is what we mean, this is what we believe it means to be a Christian. 
um, you know, we, uh, we, we see the reality of our sin, we're willing to confess that sin, and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Are we on the same page? Yeah. Okay, good. Now that we're on the same page, if God is who he says he is, and we are who we say we are, well then we need the word of God specifically to speak into our lives. Do we believe that that word is sufficient for us and for our spiritual life or not? Um, and I would run straight to this, the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. Because if, if we truly believe that scripture is sufficient, um, that really kind of rips the rug right out from underneath the entire charismatic movement in that everything that they're, that they're pursuing and proclaiming is not necessary if you, if you fully affirm a strong muscular doctrine of, of the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture. If Scripture is sufficient, why? Right? Why do you need tongues if Scripture is enough? Um, and now you can begin to kind of ask some of those questions once they've affirmed the, su the sufficiency of Scripture. And when they continue to go down those paths, well, tongues for this and for that and over here for that. But, but why, right? If you truly believe in what we just said, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, why, right? Um, and that, that can be a helpful on-ramp. So gospel number one, you know, are we brothers? Sufficiency of Scripture number two. Then ask the question, so why the charismatic doctrine? Okay, that, that might be how I would go, go about that. All right, good question. Others? Yeah, Pat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we, we can get into this a little bit more when we get into the doctrines of angelology, which will be sometime in 2025 probably. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, demon possession is a real thing. Um, I do not believe, firmly do not believe, that a Christian can be, can be demon-possessed um, or really even demon-oppressed. Uh, and the reason for that is because what part does light have with darkness? And if you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, as we've been learning in John 14 and 15, you have the fullness of God in you. And so of, of demonic force, right? So I'm glad you made that clarification. But at the same time, um, I, I do believe that, that there is a very real spiritual world out there with, a, with very real spiritual warfare taking place. Um, and for those who do not know Christ and do not have the Spirit of God resident within them, it is entirely possible for them to be indwelt by, by demonic activity. Now, having said that, I do also see, um, just as during periods of great revelation, um, such as during the days of Moses and Joshua or Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the apostles, just as there is a spike in the miraculous affirmation through particular sign gifts, so too is there a spike in demonic activity and oppression during those very same periods. Um, so, you know, you read the Gospels and it's like every other person you run into, not quite, but, but it feels that way, like his demon-possessed and Jesus is casting him out here, 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 and here. And you're like, I just don't see that in my, in my world. Why? Well, it's not because it doesn't happen. It's just that I don't, know that I, I, don't, I don't believe that the prevalence of it is what it was in that day. Because as the revelation increases, so, do, so too does the opposition during that period of revelation. And so as the miracles increase, the signs to affirm this revelation, so too does the, acti the, the demonic activity over here. 
I think that's what you see happening there. So, okay? Good. little angelology mixed into the, into the pie this morning. I like it. Yeah, Marv. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, that happened very specifically at the 1923 Azusa Street Revival. Um, so there was a, a specific event in Pasadena where believe her name was Amy Simple McPherson first debuted that new interpretation which guys I think that that really is the biggest problem for cessation or for, for continuationists you know they say well hey you got to give me a chapter and a verse that says the gifts have ceased burden of proofs on you and I'm saying no actually burden of proofs not on me it's on you because the gifts did cease for 1900 years where the church history um, and it wasn't until 1923 when all of a sudden, bam, you know, here's this gift of tongues that is this new thing. And when you introduced it, by the way, it's something very different than what happened back there. So the first century true gift of tongues has never at any period in church history been observable or identified outside of the first century. So burden of proof is actually on you because church history does not affirm this at any point. And everybody in church history, from Luther to Calvin to um, Edwards, all uniformly affirm these gifts were revelatory for a period of time and they ceased. And it wasn't until the last hundred years where all of a sudden this new thing comes up, they take a biblical language that seems to be close to it, slap it on it, this new phenomena, and say that's the gift of tongues. No, it's not. It's not the gift of tongues biblically defined, nor is it the gift of tongues historically defined. It's something different, which now puts the burden of you on you for having to prove to me why this is legitimate. I don't have the burden of proof. You do, right? So that, that's what I would say to that. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I just, I, I never understood how it got very clearly. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. <coughs> yeah, the, the popularization of that, um, of that interpretation really coincided with a turn in a Western civilization towards the individual. So individualization um, becomes huge in the mid-20th century with postmodern uh, with, with postmodern theology, um, s the sexual revolution, it all becomes about me and my experience. And now there's a distinct brand of Christianity, namely charismatic Christianity, that allows me and affords me as an individual to have a, an experiential kind of faith um, that fits very well with the emphasis of the world around me. Um, and so I can have my Christianity cake and eat it too, <laughs> right? Where now it is all about me and it's all about my experience and all about my feelings and emotions and emotiveness 
um, before God, just as it is before the rest of the world. And so it fits very well with kind of the mindset of the, of the world, frankly, at that point, which is why it's just wholesale embraced by, by such a broad swath of both the Christian community and the secular world. Um, but that, that doesn't mean just because something is embraced by a lot of people that it's true. You've got to go back to the scriptures and say, let's define it biblically. And if you do that, 1 Corinthians 14, what you're doing isn't consistent with biblical instructions. So we have to reject it regardless of how many millions of people accept it, right? What does the Bible say? Let's do that. Well, I can't do that. That's because they ceased, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Carl Truman calls that expressive individualism. Yeah, expressive individualism, the rise and triumph of the modern self. That's good, yeah. If you guys haven't read that book, that is a super helpful book. A little technical maybe, um, but super helpful book to understanding why um, in our society today what's happening is happening. Maybe that would be a good book for anthropology next semester. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Triumph. Yeah, in fact, be careful. There, there's two versions um, there's a really long, super technical version um, that's like 600 pages long. That's that one. What's the other one? That's the one. And then he wrote like a yeah. Then he wrote like a lay level version that's way more understandable. Okay, called A Strange New World. Don't buy Rise and Triumph. Buy A Strange New World. That one's going to be way more helpful. Trust me. Um, the first one is like, what am I reading right now? Um, but the second one's super good. Okay, good. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, e e uh, indirectly, yes. I don't know that that would be a proof text that I would go to to say, boom, there it is. Um, I think the signs really are for, are, are for everybody, but specifically for, for the Jewish people, um, you know, because the Jews had been kind of pre-programmed through the Old Testament to be looking for signs of the Messiah, which is why 1 Corinthians 1 talks about the Jews looking for a sign. Well, God had told them to look for signs. So that, that's why. But you also see signs happening outside of the Jewish parameters, right? It's why the apostles are doing signs all over Asia Minor outside of a Jewish population. So it's not that signs are exclusively for the Jewish people. I think signs are for everybody, but especially for the Jewish people, right? Um, the, 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 the reference to the Greeks there, I think, is more of a historical reference to their preoccupation with philosophy um, and with kind of understanding things mentally. So that's why in Paul's letters to the churches in Asia Minor, it's, it's very strongly... Um, you know, kind of philosophically geared. Whereas in a lot of the Gospels, there's not as much like philosophical rhetoric, but it's just sign, 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 sign. Because in the Gospels, Jesus is interacting primarily, almost exclusively, with the Jewish people, right? So um, I, I think that's what's, what's going on there. I, I don't know that, I think that could be helpful in this, in this conversation, but I don't know that I would go to that as being a proof text specifically. Yeah, Doug.
Yeah, yes, yeah. So um, tongues, miracles, prophecy were all gifts that were given especially in great abundance to the apostles specifically, right? Um, because they were for the affirmation of the apostolic message and mission. Um, so, you know, Paul there in 1 Corinthians, you got to remember the context. He, he is, you know, kind of doing battle royale with the Corinthians who are questioning, like, who do you think you are, Paul? Um, I'm baptized of, of Apollos. I'm baptized of Peter. You know, maybe some of you baptized by me. And they're, they're kind of questioning his credentials. And the reason why, you know, Paul kind of brings that up there is not to, you know, um, wag it in their face and say, nah, 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 nah. That's not, that's not what he's doing. He, he's affirming his ap apostolic um, ministry. You know, he's saying, I, I am an apostle. Y you, you need to listen to what I have to say. How can I prove to you that I'm an apostle? Because you all are so proud of your ability to speak in tongues. I have done it more than you because I'm an apostle. That's, that's the proof that you need. So, you know, that, that's what he is saying there in 1 Corinthians. You cannot take that verse out of its context and now apply it to, your, to yourself as a non-apostle in the modern day. That just, that doesn't fly. Okay? Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, so my personal interpretation of that text, a lot of people would go back to that text and actually use that as kind of the silver bullet verse for cessationism. Um, I don't know that I would do that. I think it can be a helpful verse in the context of the conversation, but I think the perfect in that text in 1 Corinthians 13.1 is referring specifically to the coming of Christ. Um, that, hey, these gifts... Um, that we've been granted are necessary for the building up of the church. Uh, and the church is really incomplete until the window for the church age closes by Jesus returning. And when that window closes, right, the partial, this church that is being built with imperfect specimens, um, all of that imperfection is done away because the perfect man, Jesus, will have returned and we will be perfected. Um, I think that's really the, the, the argument that he's making there. I think it's related to the doctrine of cessationism, but I don't know that I would pin everything. I, I don't, I'm not a cessationist because of that verse. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah, Tony. What was that? Right. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say verse 1? I meant verse 10, obviously. Um, yeah, and, and that, that is where, um, in the context, I, that's the reason why I say I think this text is helpful as it relates to the doctrine of cessationism. Um, because it, it's clear that, hey, at some point, these sign gifts are going to go away. 
The question is not, will they go away? It's just, when do they or when did they? Um, at what point in history? Yeah. Yes, right. So <laughs> you could say it this way, and, and continuationists really don't like this statement, but it's true. Everybody is a cessationist. It's true. Like, in the eternal state, there aren't going to be people running around doing, the gift, doing healings because there will be no need for healings. So all of these gifts cease. So everybody is a functional cessationist. It's just a matter of when, right? I think there's a very strong biblical case to be made for, for all the reasons we've articulated that that point has already been reached. Okay? Good. Yeah, Tom. So we were talking, does this relate to false Uh, no. Um, so the question is, were the Gnostics and the false teachers in the first century also using these gifts? And I would say the answer to that is no, and that is the point of the gifts, is to distinguish and differentiate in the absence of the word of God, the true message. It's why there's literally a gift of discernment to be able to, that doesn't mean that I can, you know, just tell something good from something bad. No, it means that I can discern the spirits, literally, is what, is what the text says. Um, you know, knowing this is a true revelation from God because it's something new versus this is not a true revelation from God and it's something new. So given two new statements of supposed revelation, which are true and which are false, well, if the canon is not completed and I don't have the full scripture to use to discern which are true and which are false, how am I supposed to know? Well, there's a miraculous gift of discernment to be able to know what is true and what is false. Um, in the context of a church where the word of God is incomplete. Right, so what I meant was they didn't have to. Correct. So they wanted to. Yes, so the yeah. whole point of gifts was to be able to demonstrate I am truly have the Holy Spirit and this true verse is I not have the Holy Spirit and this is false. So, you know, you see Simon just for instance, trying to buy gifts from the apostles, because um, he's okay, I want some power. Um, and you know, he's a teacher, he wants the power of gifts, but he doesn't have it, and how much is going to cost me? Um, and Peter walks in and says, no, these are for sale. You know, the point is that you know, they're only given to those who really have the Spirit of God. Uh, validate the message, right? So I, I'm not, a, I wouldn't believe the Gnostics Solstead would have and these kind of spiritual gifts. Yeah. 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 Okay. Maybe one more. Yeah, Kurt. Um, and I, I think that really um, gets into um, a very important question. Um, why would an evangelical church 
practice tongues and pursue tongues when that is something that is primarily meant for the affirmation of a message to the unbelieving world? Um, I think the answer to that question really does get down into why people are pursuing these sign gifts today. They're not pursuing them by and large because, man, we've got to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. They're pursuing them because they, they desire a personal, experiential kind of Christianity that is driven by themselves would make. Um, it's not as though I'm you know, standing in judgment, slamming them when I say that. That's what they would say for themselves about themselves. Um, and that's where you know, I look at um, the scriptures and I just don't see that as being what Jesus calls me to pursue in, in my own Christianity, right? Um, what Jesus calls me to pursue is a deep and abiding relationship with him, not an emotionally driven experience that makes, that, that makes me feel good. So, you know, the answer to your question, why are churches doing this? Well, because it makes individual people within those churches feel like they've had an experience with faith. Um, but in many cases, that experience is lacking the substance of the truth of the gospel of the scripture. And so we're substituting um, a temporary experience that looks like faith with the substantive reality of true faith that is driven by the scriptures. That's a really dangerous thing to do. And that, that's my concern um, with this. And it's why I think it's a really big deal. And it's important for us to understand it. Okay. Uh, you know, there, there, the one more thing that I, that I want to make men of, and, and this is kind of the bullet, the continuationists will all lot and sensationists. Uh, they will say things like, Who are you to God box? Who are you to tell God that he cannot do these things? Um, you know, because that they believe systems are saying that, hey, God can't do miracles today. God can't speak in today. That is not what cessationism is saying. Cessationists are not saying, I am not saying that God cannot do any of these things. Um, God absolutely can do these things if he chose to do so. It's just that very clearly, based upon what we see in his word, and based upon what we see happening throughout church history, he is choosing not to do these things. Okay? So we're not saying that he can't. He's just not. Um, and, and we know that based upon what we can observe happening in the church around us for the last 1,900 years, and we also know that based upon what we've looked at here in the scriptures um, as being the stated purpose for these gifts. God is the one who chose to exercise these gifts in the church that was by his choice, and he is the one who chose to give us the completion of his word and say it's sufficient, and he is the one who chose to cease these things. So I, as a cessationist, I'm not controlling God or putting him in a box in any way um, by, by saying what I'm saying about cessationism. I'm just acknowledging the reality of what he has chosen to do already. Um, so I think that's a very important point to make because that's kind of, a, that's kind of the emotional hook that continuationists will use to say, Psh, forget this because that can't be true. Well, I would say, yeah, I, I don't agree with that. You're not, ac you're not ac accurately representing my position when you say that, right? Um, I, I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying he's not. Um, he could, but I just don't see that happening. Um, so I, I think that's a very, very important statement to make. Okay? Yeah. 
Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay? Guys, I hope that's helpful. And look, it's a really important issue that is very confusing to many people in the church today. If, if you have questions or you're still confused, I am very well to, to sit down and chat with you, um, answer any questions that you've got. Feel free to text me, email me, call me, and uh, we, can, we can sort through together. But here's, here's what I do make sure we understand, all right? Um, as I said, many people, especially continuationists, um, they, are, they are looking for, um, vocally so, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit today. Um, and, and what does that look like? Well, it's interesting. You go back to the 1740s during the period of the Great Awakening, and there were certain marks happening there in the 1740s during the Great Awakening. Um, of the Holy Spirit's outpouring, the Holy Spirit's working. There were true markers and there were false markers. And Jonathan Edwards, who had kind of right there driver's seat for the Great Awakening, um, he put in the ways of having to discern and figure out which of the things that we see happening um, are true markers of the Spirit's outpouring versus false markers of the Spirit's outpouring, um, which sounds like a very um, similar situation to the one that we find ourselves here today. And Edward, um, through and kind of categorized and listed all of the different things, you know, ecstatic experience, dreams and visions, bodily responses, um, and he, he categorically rejected all of those things. He said those are not true manifestations of the Spirit of God. Um, kind of this hysteric mode of worship, um, you know, this experientialism that he was seeing in his own day, and he's saying that, that's not consistent with anything that's found in Scripture. And Edwards, which it, Edwards, who is the premier American theologian, there has not been a better theologian used by the United States than Jonathan Edwards, in my and many others' estimation. Um, here is what he said outpouring of the Spirit looked like in his day, which is consistent with what the outpouring of the Spirit looked like in the church, and it's consistent with what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit should look like in our day. Let me just read these for you because I think they're really helpful. This is in a little work that he wrote in 1741 called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Listen, the true work of the Spirit of God is going to be marked by a deep and abiding love for the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 16, we'll see it in a few weeks. Jesus says, the Spirit of God is going to glorify me. And so if a movement does not have its eyes focused on the person of Jesus Christ, it is not of the Holy Spirit. If a movement is so preoccupied with the pursuit of the Spirit that it forgets about Christ, that is a surefire way of, of knowing this is not truly of the Spirit. Because the Spirit's function is to magnify Christ according to Christ. Okay? That's what Jesus himself said in John 16. Second thing, a desire to kill sin and break the bonds of worldliness. That's what an outpouring of the Spirit actually looks like. You're going to desire to kill your sin and break the bonds of worldliness because now you've got God living with you, and so you're not going to be content to live like the world. He's going to convict you. That's what Jesus said, again, in John 16. We'll get there in a few weeks. A deep love for, number three, and desire to feast on God's word. Edward says that's marker number three. That the, that the Spirit of God has truly been poured out in your midst. Is there a desire for the Word of God? What do we learn in John chapter 14? The Holy Spirit is known as the Helper or the Spirit of what? Truth. 
right? He will guide you to all truth. And we've seen that as we've gone through John 14. The Spirit is the one who illumines our minds according to the truth of Scripture and uses that Scripture to not only empower our spiritual life, but also reveal the person of Christ to us. So if you want to see the Spirit's work, um, you got to ask yourself, do I, do I really desire the Word of God or not? And so if you want to look at a, at, at a movement or at a church and say, um, how do I know if the Spirit of God is truly active and vibrant in this church? You don't listen to the quality of their music. You don't look at the, you don't look at the power of um, you know, a- anything there other than their love for the Word of God. A church where the Word of God is um, held dear and uplifted, that is a church where the Spirit of God is going to have his way. Anything short of that is not a work of the Spirit of God. Okay? Number four an unshakable conviction of sound doctrine. Jesus literally says in John 14 and again in John 16 that he will convict you about all things that are true. And so a fundamental mark of the Spirit of God is a sound conviction and settledness that what I believe is true. Only this, and I would die for it. That's how convinced I am. That's a marker of the, of the Spirit's true presence um, is that I am convinced in, in sound doctrine, all right? And then number five, this one's really important, and we're going to get into this a little bit on Sunday. Uh, you're going to find an increased love for God and man. Jesus says, look, um, if, you, if you love me, you will have my spirit within you, and you will then be enabled to obey my commands. And this is my command, that you love one another. And what was the agent that was going to enable your obedience to the command to love one another, the spirit of God that he was going to give, right? Um, and so that's the fifth and final mark you can look at to say, is this of the spirit or not, okay? And, and line it up accordingly. Uh, and, and, and this is what we'll tell you, okay? There's a great quote from Tim Challies. Um, you know, a lot of continuationists would look at us and they would say, boy, that sounds like a boring Christian life to not have access to any of these miraculous things that are so experiential and so wonderful and make me feel so warm and fuzzy. Um, but t- here's what Tim Challies has to say about this, and I think it's important to remember, and uh, I think this will be a good way for us to conclude this part of our discussion. He says, I am not a continuationist um, and do not believe that my experience of the Christian faith and life suffer on that basis. Saying I'm not less of a Christian because I don't exercise the miraculous sign gifts. Instead of focusing on the drama of the miraculous, I find joy in the beauty of God's ordinary providence. The great drama unfolding in, through, and around us as God miraculously brings people to himself, that's what he's referring to, is foremost a story of God working through his careful, constant providence, his moment-by-moment means of bringing about his will. And gentlemen, what that produces within us is a settled confidence and peace rather than an ecstatic, uncontrolled outburst. And we can be settled. We can be content. We don't need the dramatic ecstasy as though we were on some kind of spiritual drug of choice. What we need is settled confidence and peace for life in the face of a turbulent world. A belief in cessationism is not a belief in something lesser. It's a belief in something greater. Namely, the providence and sovereignty of God at work in my life, and now I've been caught up into that which he is doing, and I can see his hand at work all around me. 
Um, that's what I believe, and I'm, I'm settled in it. I'm confident in it because I have the Spirit of God working within me, and I don't, I don't need any kind of ecstatic experience to validate that. All I need is to look at my life and see, has he transformed me or not? That's what I need from the Spirit of God. Okay? So then let, let me just kind of end with that punctuation mark on this topic of cessationism, and I've spent way more time this morning than I planned to do on that. So let's just, let's just move along, because a couple weeks ago, you know, we, we had to cancel um, our, our session together because we had the men's conference. I think that was certainly a worthy effort, but I do want to make sure that we don't shortchange you on any of the material, because we skipped over the week uh, where we were talking about um, what spirit-filled worship looks like. If you recall, just for the sake of reference, in John chapter 4, Jesus says, look, the day is coming when true worshipers are not going to worship me in a specific place. No, they're going to worship according to the spirit and truth, right? In John chapter 4, you guys remember that? That was quite a while, probably a year and a half ago, maybe, that we were in John chapter 4. But we looked at that in, in detail. Um, and, and I just want to bring our attention back to that, because if you, if you have the Spirit of God within you, this is a critical part of pneumatology. This is where pneumatology goes from theory to practice. Um, the Spirit of God in you is not only going to impact your worship, it is going to become, he is going to become the ground and foundation for your worship. All right, you cannot worship if you do not have the Spirit of God within you. And having the Spirit of God within you is going to impact the way by which you pursue worship. Because what is, again, the primary function of the Spirit in our life? Remind me, please, educate me. To bring glory to Christ, okay? Which means that the the fundamental pursuit of my worship is going to be focused on who? Christ, not me. So much of Christian worship today is focused on me, not Christ which is an absolute inversion of the reality of the Spirit of God's priorities. The Spirit of God's priority is that you would make much of Him, not you, right? And so having the Spirit of God within you really aims um, and directs your worship if your worship is focused on that which the Spirit of God would have you to be focused on. It has to be focused on the person of Christ specifically. All right, so that, that's very important to remember, um, which means that worship is not meant to be selfish. It wasn't meant to be focused on me. No, it's meant to be focused on God, right? It's only as we place our focus upon God that our needs are met and not the other way around. What does this mean? It means that worship is not supposed to be mystical, I'm not searching for some kind of ethereal divine experience. You know, a lot of churches will seek to generate an emotional experience that feels like I've been with God. But what is the only way to see and know God? His word, right? Which is kind of the secondary function of the Spirit of God, right? This is how the Spirit of God impacts your worship. He illumines your mind according to what is true. And it's why Jesus says the day is coming when the Spirit of God arrives when you will worship in what? Spirit and truth. Which means this now explains for us how worship is to be governed. These are the parameters for worship. Worship is not an anything goes sort of exercise. It's not to be designed around what we want. It's to be designed around that which we know to be true. It's why the Word of God has to be central in our corporate 
worship. It's why, and I so appreciate about this about Ethan. Um, you know, a lot of times people will ask the question, why do you guys read the scripture so much? I mean, if you notice, every week before we ever get to singing, what does Ethan do? He reads the scripture. And after we've sung, what then do I get up and do? Read a scripture. And after we've sung some more, what do I get up and do? Read the scripture. And when I go to conclude the service, what do I do? I read the scripture. Why? Because worship must be governed and directed by the truth. That is what the Spirit of God uses to enable our, our worship and light our souls on fire. It, it's, it's his word. And so true worship has to be word-saturated. And if it is saturated by the word and it's empowered by the Spirit, then it's not going to be passive. True worship isn't passive. Guys, worship is not a spectator sport, right? Um, it's not as though we're consumers coming to a concert on Sunday mornings. You've got your concert on Friday night. That's a secular one. I got my concert on Sunday mornings where there's a speech involved, but, but that's, I'm, I'm just going to, to sit and listen and hear. No, that's not worship, right? When we come before the living God, our worship demands action, passionate praise, devoted thought, deep contemplation, urgent repentance, eager service. All of those things are manifestations of true worship. Um, it also means that worship, and I know I'm going quick here, but that's because of time. Worship is not a performance, right? Many, many churches have a worship team that puts on a show. And when I go to worship, what does that mean? It means that I'm going to performance. My eyes are going to be directed to God as other people engage in worship. That's not what worship is. Worship is not a performance that I go and enjoy and, and think God thoughts. No, worship is me engaging specifically with God, which now leads us down to the true definition of worship. Worship is not something that just happens on a Sunday morning when we all gather together. No, worship is something that wraps its arms around the totality of our life. You know, when um, we were going through this section, um, in John chapter 4, the elders stopped and we had a, a lengthy discussion. It might have been via text message, actually, but it was a lengthy discussion. You should see the elders' text thread. It just goes on and on and on. I love it. It's great. But we hashed out together a good working definition of what worship is, and, and here it is. True worship means ascribing to God in all of life, all of life, that's very important, the honor and adoration that he is due with a heart that has been transformed by truth. Every part of that definition is important. Okay, true worship, it has to be a response to who God is and what he has done. You can see that in Psalm 8. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 clarifies it further for us, where it says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of my redeemed person, my entire life. This is what we talked about Sunday, remember? Your mind, your will, your emotions, all of you submitted to all of Christ. After all, isn't that what abiding in Christ means? That my entirety, my entire self, my whole self is submitted to the reality of who he is. Mind, will, and emotions governed by his word, love, and joy. The wholeness of my life is now to be lived out as an expression of my worship. Um, Ethan has said it this way in the past in some seminars that he has done here at the church. Worship includes my voice 
and my choice, right? Worship wraps its arms all the way around both voices and choices. It's not just singing on Sunday morning. Well, that's a part of worship, sure. That's maybe the most, visible, the most visible expression of worship, but worship goes far deeper than that. It extends to the choices that you make in your daily life as well, and that's really what Romans chapter 12 is getting at. Ascribing to God in all of life the honor and adoration that he is due. The basic meaning of the word that is used in Scripture for worship or the words that are used in Scripture for worship is that I'm willing to honor and adore God as I see what he's done and reflect on who he is. What is the only way you can see the reality of who God is and what he's done? It says you have the Spirit of God within you illuminating your spiritual eyes based upon the knowledge of spiritual truth that is found in the Word of God. Okay? Um, with a heart that has been transformed, that's the next part of the definition, worshiping in spirit, that, that is, true worship originates inside of us. It's an internal reality taking place in a spiritual dimension. Worship is the overflow of my heart towards God. It's not defined as an emotional experience. It's not just a physical response. It's not purely an intellectual pursuit. It is a spiritual orientation that bursts forth from a redeemed core. That's what it means to have a heart that has been transformed. Okay? Very important to understand. And the last part of the definition there is that all of this is governed by the truth. If worship happens in the spiritual realm, then he and his word are the standard by which acceptable worship is offered. I'm not free to worship the right God in the right way with the wrong attitude or the wrong heart. It has to be according to the truth. You know, it's very interesting, guys, um, when you stop and look at um, Ephesians 5.18. That is a text that says, do not be drunk with wine. Don't be filled up with an intoxicating beverage that controls you. Instead, be filled up with what? Be filled with the Spirit. He is the one who is now to control you. And it's very interesting because the direct parallel passage in the twin book of Ephesians, so Ephesians is here, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians is here. The book of Ephesians and Colossians in many ways are mirror images of each other. And the parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18 over in Colossians 3.16 defines what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. You guys remember this? What, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Colossians 3.16 tells us to be filled with the Word. Richly, right? We talked about that this past Sunday. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So there's a, an equal sign between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word. But if you're filled with the Word slash Spirit, they're the same thing. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3 and let me show you what the immediate result looks like. I think this is really important. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Same thing as being filled by the Spirit. And if that's taking place, then teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What does that sound like? Sounds like what we do on Sundays. Sounds like worship, right? Sounds like what we do every day of the week. But it's worship. Right? That's the result of the word of Christ and the spirit dwelling in you richly is that you will be able to teach and admonish each other in all wisdom and you will be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. 
See, worship is the direct fruit of the Spirit's presence in your life. But he's not done. Look at where he goes next. Verse 17, And in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's not just listening to a sermon, and it's not just singing some songs. Worship extends now to every part of your life, all of it, in word or deed, all of it being submitted to the glory of Jesus Christ and God his Father. How does any of that happen? It's only as the Spirit of God is resident within you, filling you, illuminating your mind to the word of truth, allowing that word to dwell in you richly, that now worship flows. Do you see the connection there between having the Spirit and worship? If you have the Spirit, worship will result. If you do not have the Spirit, you cannot possibly worship. And so if you look at your life and say, my life is not an act of spiritual worship and service is unto the Lord. Well, then you need to go back and reevaluate some things about the nature of your relationship to the Spirit of God. Because if you're walking by the Spirit, submitting yourself to Him, as we talked about over the summertime with this whole uh, idea of sanctification and how people grow and change. If you're walking by the Spirit, the result in you is going to be a radical reorientation where you see everything in your life as being an act of spiritual service, which is only reasonable, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, given what Jesus has done for you. Okay, there's a direct connection between pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit within you, and the worship of your life as you walk day by day, moment by moment. Okay, and that's where I want to leave things for you. Um, I know there's a bunch of marks of spiritual worship there. Um, you know, I have one minute left, so let me just fill in the blanks. And if you want to understand these things more, I don't need to explain them because these are all direct quotes from Costi's book. I believe it's chapter maybe five where he talks about spirit-filled worship. So marks of spirit-filled worship, let me just give them to you. Can you just put them all up on the screen there so guys can write them down? I'm sorry we didn't get here, guys. Um, but the material is available for you if you would like it. Uh, true spirit-filled worship is modeled by qualified leaders. It is controlled by the Spirit. It prioritizes truth amidst passion. It focuses on God's holiness. It involves confession and, and admits to being a sinner. And it declares the glory of Christ. You want to know if something is true worship or not? Go back and line it up according to these qualities. And that will tell you if worship is genuine or if it's fake. Okay? Any last-minute questions? Anything that you're really concerned about here as it relates to cessationism or worship. Excellent. That means it's clear as mud. I like it. All right, guys, last week is our last week, and we're going to be talking about does the Spirit of God still speak to us today? And that's the last lesson here for pneumatology, and then we'll have a break over the holiday season and come back and hit it hard in January. But I'm looking forward to that, and we'll look forward to seeing you men not only next week, but on Sunday morning. We've got good stuff in store there too. See you then. Thanks.